1: You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash Media.
0: This week's Law and Order Marathon winner is Alyssa Sargent of East Hartford, Connecticut. Alyssa will receive a marathon decal showing she watched 26.2 hours of her favorite crime show. To be next week's winner, sign up at lawandorderpodcast.com.
2: I'm Kevin Flynn with Rebecca Lavoie and Lawrence Tucker, and these are their stories.
3: You think you know who did it, but you don't know who did it. Lie in order, lie in order, lie in order.
1: It's no ordinary police procedural, baby. It's the FNOG of police procedures, baby. Lie in order, lie in order, lie in order, lie in order. These are their stories, these are their stories.
2: Welcome to These Are Their Stories, the podcast about network TV's most enduring crime franchise and the real life cases that inspired their shows. I'm Kevin Flynn. Each podcast will break down an episode from either criminal intent, SVU, or original recipe. And today we're looking at Law and Order, season six, episode six, paranoia. A girl was on
4: scholarship, right? And it's got to be over 20 grand a year for four years under false pretenses.
2: It seems kind of petty for killing a roommate. Joining me to do just that is true crime author and the host of Crime Writers On and Slate's Mom and Dad Are Fighting podcasts, Rebecca Lavoy. Hello, Rebecca. Thanks for
5: having me, Kevin. It's a real pleasure.
2: And rounding out our panel is our special guest from the awesome 80s podcast, Lawrence Tucker. Hello, Lawrence. Hello. Great to be here. It's great to have you. So you're an expert on all things 80s. You know, some of the cop shows in the 80s were, and I have a list here. Okay, ready? ready. Miami Vice, T.J. Hooker, Uh Hunter, The Equalizer, Magnum P.I., Spencer for Hire, Remington Steel, and Sledgehammer. (laughs) All of these police shows are focused on super cops, Mm. right? And not crimes. Where does Law & Order fit into this universe of police entertainment?
4: I think Law & Order is kind of the next step. You mentioned uh, a lot of them there, and they were all very formulat- uh, formulatic. You had with the, Simon and Simon was kind of the private detectives who used to be cops. And you had Hunter, who was like, the super cop, and Remington Steele. And so when you went into around 1990 with Law and Order, you definitely got more of the grittier feel, first of all. So kind of that shine of the 80s was gone. And then you also got... The kind of the next step also, because towards the end of the 80s, we had some of the law shows, L.A. Law being, you know, the one Mm -hmm. forefront of my mind. But they weren't nearly as big as the law shows became in the 90s. And I think that Law and Order was almost kind of that bridge.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, Hill Street Blues and, you know, after it, NYPD Blue, early part of the 90s. Those were the shows that I think are, are really the closest to the feel of lawn or especially those early seasons. But
5: those were character study shows, way more so than crime-driven shows, right? It was more about, like, Sipowitz and his way-too-beautiful wife and his temper. Right. <laughs> and those were both uh,
4: Stephen Botchko shows, too, yep. those two. So, you know, you kind of had his similar way of writing uh, character, yeah. So, so is Cop Rock, it's but true.
5: no one remembers. Yes. That one. <laughs> oh, I, I remember I do. Cop Rock. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez, yeah. who couldn't forget that one? Yeah. Yeah. But again,
2: it, it strikes me because, as much as you know, the, the gimmick of original Law and Order was one half of the show is police, then the next half is is law. It's also that we don't know much about the characters, right? And that instead of it being about you know Sledgehammer and Magnum PI. These guys just go through and put the procedural in police procedural,
5: and it's different every week, right? So if yeah. you think about it, Law and Order has more in common, like with the Incredible Hulk, than it does with uh, <laughs> you know cop shows from the '80s, because it's about like a new thing every week, a new crime, a new story, with very slow exposition on the character development. You know, so it actually has more in common, you know, besides the Incredible Hulk. What was that show about the fire station that was on in the '70s? Emergency. Uh, yeah, like yeah, shows, shows like that. Shows that were about like this is the story of the yeah. week. Yeah, and it really
2: harkens back to Dragnet. It's
5: kind of old-fashioned yeah. when you think about it, even though at the time it felt really new.
2: Not so much. So, Lawrence, of all the franchises, which two cops are your favorite detective team? Favorite
4: law and order detective team! That's, see, that's tough, actually, because I have two. <laughs> and I thought about this. I had a feeling I might get asked this. And <laughs> so, Briscoe is going to be the key. Yeah. I, wanted, I, I first thought Briscoe and Logan, for sure... Uh, Just because he was at the beginning of the Briscoe reign, and uh, I think that he kind of brought a lot out of Briscoe. Like, I don't think that the character of Briscoe would have been defined without Logan uh, Mm -hmm. being that first person he uh, partnered with. But I think my favorite Briscoe was during the Ed Green years. So I ultimately went with Briscoe and Green, which... I don't know if you hear that too
2: often, but... Uh, Yeah, no, we do. You'd
5: be surprised how often we hear it. They're definitely my favorite pairing from the Law & Order franchise, for sure.
2: And so it's obvious that in this episode, we picked your least favorite (laughs) Briscoe pair. (laughs) Uh, Hey, Lawrence, (laughs) who's your favorite prosecutorial team?
3: Favorite Law & Order District Attorney Prosecutorial
1: Team.
4: Uh, That, without a doubt, is McCoy and Kincaid. Yeah. So... You nailed it there. <laughs> to me, and we'll talk about it when we talk about the episode because I have a lot of thoughts. I've spent far too much time of my life thinking about the relationship between Kincaid and McCoy, from where mm. it began to where it ended, mm. and
2: what could have been,
4: and what could have been,
5: <laughs> and what actually was. Right? That's yeah. the, that's the
2: key right there. We don't
5: really see a whole lot of it. Let's be real. No,
2: <laughs> very little. <laughs>
4: And that's what, lead, that's what makes me think of it so much.
2: Ah, uh, the wistful. And, and just think of all the crossing Jordan we would be deprived of.
5: <laughs> oh, God. <laughs>
2: all right, now let's take a look at the first half of this episode, Law & Order Season 6, Episode 6, Paranoia. Just when you think walking into a woman's dormitory is going to be all sexy pillow fights and communal showers... <laughs> There goes Megan finding her roommate Allison stabbed a billion times on her bed.
3: Can you imagine dying while reading Moby Dick? Yeah. It almost killed me once.
4: You actually read this thing?
3: Made it through about 30 pages on whale blubber, then I bailed out. So what do you got?
4: 20 stab
3: wounds and counting. Well, if a thing's worth doing. Streetwise
2: Briscoe and judgy rookie technophile Ray Curtis want to know who would want to kill Allison. Her boyfriend says there was a guy who wrote rape and murder fantasies about Allison on something called the internet. <laughs> with the help of a cigar smoking pornographer who looks a lot like Sting, the detectives trace the writings to Meryl Grupp, computer nerd with rape fantasies. They find a pair of Allison's panties in his apartment, which he swears he got on a panty raid in the dorm. Although he looks good for the crime, his computer shows he was posting at the time of the murder. They look closer at roommate Megan. Whose own alibi about rehearsing the violin doesn't check out. When Briscoe and Curtis return to the dorm, they find Megan delirious from an overdose, passed out on Allison's bloody bed. While looking for the pills she took, they find a knife in her violin case, and Megan confesses to the killing. Okay, so something I did not remember about Curtis, because this is the we're six episodes into the the character of Curtis being on the show. Yep he really starts off being judgy af
0: oh
4: oh extremely yes it's not just the colleges it's everywhere won't let my kids near network television
0: last week stefan watched this mess on pbs about a crazy woman who stabs this guy spends the rest of the
5: story trying to wash the blood off her hands
4: i don't think that's very funny i mean some of that crap coming
5: out of hollywood is dangerous it's like, our. I mean, yeah, I mean, this is the whole thing, the whole thing with the breakfast and like the being judgy about Lenny getting the breakfast special as a gift from the waiter for, you know, helping him out a while back. And he's like... That doesn't seem ethical. But it's also funny, like, he seems to be negotiating out of his own ethics so many times with Briscoe in this episode. (laughs) Like, Briscoe's able to talk him out of thinking the right way and doing the right thing, like, over and over again. It's a fun dynamic.
4: I think this was the start of the turning point because he was very whiny. I remember when I was watching this episode, I was like, oh, yeah. Curtis had a very whiny start, and he he kept wanting Lenny (laughs) – up until this episode, I remember he kept wanting him to meet the wife, and Lenny's like, I don't need to meet your wife.
1: And in this episode, (laughs) he kind of got bombarded with it. But
4: yeah, I'll bring her to you. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Anything Lenny did, he just side-eyed or gave kind of this look and just very whiny, very whiny.
5: Can we just talk about the fact that Ray Curtis brings his wife and three daughters to work? They're gorgeous. Hey,
3: hey,
4: Lieutenant. You remember my wife, Deborah, right? Yes. Lieutenant Buren.
5: Good to see you again. Nice to see you. Oh, girls. Basically, like bring your daughter to murder office day. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> thereby, in for like forcing everybody to spend quality time with his super wholesome family in the middle of a super gruesome, disgusting murder investigation that involves panties, a suspect peeing on the floor, and multiple stabbings. Like yeah. what is the fuck?
2: <laughs> <laughs> so what do you do at work, Daddy? <laughs>
5: right? I just wanted to show him where I sit. <laughs>
4: did you did you catch
2: two of his daughters' names? Olivia? Uh-huh. A- and oh, I forget.
5: And this is Olivia, Serena, and Isabel.
2: Serena? Seri- oh, foreshadowing. Oh
5: my goodness. Yeah. Dick Wolf has a limited wow. box of names he likes to pick from. Do you,
2: do you think that one daughter, Serena, is also a sleeper cell lesbian? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Curtis also got to show off his super timely knowledge about CompuServe.
4: <laughs> AOL, CompuServe, Prodigy, what? <laughs> what is this? this is good cop. Good you know, cop. when I first started on the internet... Man, there was nobody out there. Now it's it's going ten percent a month.
5: AOL, computer. I wonder when
2: Lenny did some reading. Oh, on the I'm internet. gonna go do some reading about the internet. Yes. <laughs> in a magazine. Today we'd be like, You read about that in a magazine? <laughs> What's that? Uh so I'm wondering like how well does this episode hold up? With those references. It
5: has an awesome scene that, to me, is always classic law and order. It happens a lot on SVU, too, when they're trying to investigate something on a computer. And they have to do that thing for the audience's sake, where one person who knows about computers (laughs) is sitting and typing, Uh while the other person who doesn't know about computers is telling them what to type. Erase
3: that. Erase it and print this. Read your stuff. I'm interested in discussing... Publishing
5: deal, and it's like literally you could just move them over and type that yourself. Let's be real. Briscoe probably has way better typing skills than Ray does, having been you know raised in the 1950s or whatever. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I mean it's hilarious. Yeah, he's always
2: got to fill out those D5s, you know. So he's <laughs> he got some typing <laughs> skills.
5: But Curtis is the one who insists on interviewing Merrill because I love computers, so I should talk to him. But the interview is really about just making him pee and trying to intimidate him by a threatening castration. It's a very, like, sharp turn that that interview makes, right?
2: It is, for the <laughs> ethical guy. <laughs> exactly. When Curtis starts talking to the suspect about, you know, his technical knowledge. Right. He has a line where he says, you know... Now
1: the computer is probably the single most important
2: invention of this century. It can do wonderful things. But it can also do horrible things in the hands of someone like you. <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Again, yeah, I just you know I would just wish that I knew like where he got like all these great computer skills. I think he might have picked up one of those CD ROMs that gave him a hundred free hours of America Online. <laughs> I think
5: so too. I think you did too, by the way, because guess who still has an AOL address? My oh, co-host no. Kevin Flynn.
2: <laughs> hey, now the computer is a very important tool. <laughs>
4: <laughs> the last line of his mess- his online bulletin board message, Merle's,
0: was... The more I stab you, the more I want you.
3: Sounds like Gershwin. So romantic. Literary. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And
4: you did mention Amos, the porno guy.
2: (laughs) Oh, yeah. We'll talk about him for a second. Of course, now... We we know that if you are an illegal pornographer, mm-hmm. you're definitely gonna be able to a- afford some office space in Manhattan. That's right, and
5: be friends with Lenny Briscoe. Be yeah. doing him favors.
2: Yeah, because he just got two years for doing child pornography. We sell crap to scum. So make you. Supreme Court says this.
1: Is art, wise guy, biker bitches.
5: That was one of the weirdest you know, very often in the first half of any Law and Order or SV episode, there's like a weird right turn mm-hmm. that starts at another road and then like that's the red herring. This was a very detailed and specific Right turn this episode made, mm. where it introduced this whole new character, and they had to hire all of these extras to fill out that scene. Like, typically, when an episode makes a right turn, they just go visit one person, and that's how you know that that's not going anywhere. But I, I, I was fooled, even though I have seen this before, into thinking... Perhaps this is going somewhere. Look at all the people they hired to make this scene look real. <laughs>
4: <laughs> it seems there was a much easier way to catch Merle. Like, they didn't need the guy. They just could have had them. one of them meet him, which is where I was thinking they were going. And I was like,
2: oh, yeah, Amos. Forgot about him. I think they just wanted to be able to see if they could get away with pointing to a movie poster that said, Biker Bitches. <laughs> <laughs> so edgy. Hey, we see somebody before they were famous. Sure do.
3: Before they were famous.
2: Can you name the actor who's playing Allison's boyfriend? that be Peter Sarsgaard. Peter Sarsgaard. Right. Mr. Maggie Gyllenhaal himself. One of those
5: Sarsgaards.
2: Ska- yeah, they're, <laughs> they're like the bald ones, the new bald ones. I downloaded this from
0: a sex fantasy bulletin board. I was going to give you guys a call. He
2: describes the murder, for God's sakes. Right. So Peter Skarsgård, he was the supervillain in Green Lantern, Mm -hmm. Robert Kennedy in Jackie, and we got to see his peen in Kinsey. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) He really kind of crawled out of the, hey, it's that guy phase, and it is like someone who we actually know his name.
5: I always wonder about those Skarsgårds, how much their siblingness has helped, because... You know, I always think about, which one? Is it Alexander, who was in True Blood and then was in um, yeah. A Big Little Lies? Yeah, yeah, Like, the tall, handsome Viking one? Uh, and then there's the, the... vampire. Right, and there's the other one who's <laughs> The like, creepy clown the creep- from it, yeah. yeah. This is the creepy one. Is that the, Yeah, the, the one who was also in... Uh, the other scenes, Castle Rock. Castle Rock yeah. Like they're all over the map. They all look completely different. So you sort of have to wonder how much just having that last name. It's like it's like they're the Barrymores of the 21st century, the Cyrus right?
4: My issue, I think that I agree that, that that just having that name gets them forward, but I think might what also hold them holds them back is even though they look completely different. I never remember which was which.
1: <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> yeah. So I think that,
4: although like, to get cast, they're like, oh, yeah, you're, you're in. Don't worry about it. But then to get remembered as you watch them, that they lose that. So there's the positive and negative
2: of the, have, being a Scars guard. Right. They're the 2000s version of the Baldwin brothers.
5: Yeah. And then there's the yeah. tall, handsome one. Yeah, who's in a lot of A-list stuff? Right, but we still call him the one who was in True Blood. We don't actually remember which right. exactly his <laughs> right. first name is. Come to think is. of it,
2: we've seen his peen too. <laughs> we so have. out of those brothers, it's two out of three. We've seen his
5: peen in many occasions.
2: I hope that we don't see the last brothers peen in It oh, yeah. Part Two. It's already scary enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'd be really random placement of a peen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now we're gonna make this cue right here. It's our very special guest star. Sandy Duncan.
1: That's right.
2: The terminally perky actress is playing the terminally perky Shelly Cates. That's
3: right. Do you have any idea what a messenger costs these days? So I figure I'll save myself the bucks, maybe take the kid out to Coney Island or Yankee Stadium. Motion to dismiss. Pleasure chat. Toodles.
2: Now, you know Sandy from The Cat from Outer Space. No, you don't. And The Fox and the Hound. No, you don't. And replacement Valerie Harper when they Roseanne's <laughs> <Damn>. Valerie, <laughs> and it became The Hogan Family. That's right. Thank you. Yeah, yes. but she's probably best known for her high wire act in Peter Pan. Yep. And for her many commercials for Wheat Thins.
5: Oh, I forgot about Wheat Thins, but you're 100% right about that.
4: <laughs> did, she, was she, did she do surfing movies, too, like Sally Field style, or
2: No. Uh, she was k- kind of got taken under the wing of Disney and kind of got thrown That's into right. a lot of those sort of bad, well, you know, like the cat from outer space, right. like that yeah. kind of stuff. And, um, you
5: mean that trap that Sally Field escaped that Sandy Duncan didn't quite get out of all the way?
2: <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about, flying nun? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, fun fact, uh, she does not have a glass eye. Really? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, You may know in 1971, she had a tumor removed behind her left eye. Mm -hmm. This is right when she had just started her own network TV show, and. She had to leave it, so when they removed the tumor, it left her blind in that eye, hmm. but they didn't have to replace because it still would track with her right eye, so they, they left it like that.
5: I never noticed anything wrong with her eyes. What are you talking well,
2: about? Well, that's that's why, because it's not like Sammy Davis Jr.
5: So why did it even come up? Why would you even think to bring that up?
2: Oh, no, it that was a thing.
4: Her yeah. having a glass eye. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. That, that was a rumor? Yeah, I remember hearing that.
5: It was like Mikey from the Life commercial being dead from eating Pop Rocks and soda. It's like that kind of thing.
4: Uh, well, except that's a myth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, this is the first time I'm finding out that she doesn't have the glass eye. I oh, always yeah. thought she
5: did.
4: You've just
2: blown my mind is what's there happening. There you
5: go. But she's still blind in one eye. Yeah, it is. yeah. You think about her, the trick she did as Peter Pan. Like, that's actually pretty damn impressive.
2: Yeah. You, you don't have so much peripheral vision when you're swinging left exactly. to right to left to right. <laughs> like a, like a, a grandfather clock pendulum in tights. Right.
5: I think she was great in this episode.
2: One other fact here. In the 1990s, there was a punk rock band called Sandy Duncan's Eye. (laughs) (laughs) And you didn't think it was a thing. Okay, so we we start off this episode with a look at academia. It's uh, Amsterdam University. It's not Hudson University.
1: right? (laughs) We are Hudson, where the bad guys go to school.
2: It ought to be, though, because obviously a very bad guy went to school here. And when we open this up, somebody is start trying to uh, let Lenny Briscoe know that he might be out of touch.
5: That's right. Because he isn't familiar with the vocal stylings of Bovine Night Nurse. <laughs> well,
3: there must have been some noise. Any screams? Who could tell with the Bovine Night Nurse blasting on the CD? Excuse me? Maybe it's time to think about retirement. You're a regular Shecky Green. Exactly my point.
5: In the 90s, when, like, <laughs> that was not the kind of music anybody was listening to in the 90s. Right? The all-rock scene from Cleveland.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Lawrence, we we did get to hear at least a good 30 seconds of their hit song, whatever it was. Uh, would you give them f- five stars? Can you dance to it? What do you think of Bovine Nightners? Uh,
4: I would say... if. Lawrence today went into a place and they were playing. I'd give them 10 minutes before I had a <laughs> headache. That that's saying a lot at,
2: at my age right now. That is a lot. I probably would want to stab somebody if I... <laughs> Wilson. Wilson that.
5: But there is this weird juxtaposition in this episode, especially at the beginning with Lenny being like old and out of touch, according to you know, the people on the scene. Mm-hmm. And Ray also says, you know, his ethics are sort of old and stale and out of touch. But then you get old fashioned Briscoe teaching Ray like a valuable lesson when he says, uh, you know, I'm going to go tell the parents that their daughter's dead because... It's going to be hard for them. It's like, yeah, duh. But then he's the one who holds Curtis back from, like, questioning them in the moment. And then Curtis is like, yeah, you were probably right about that. So I guess it's okay to be like an old codger in a police uh, yeah. outfit sometimes, the right? The more
4: you know. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and this episode always has it's some foreshadowing because throughout the run of Curtis and Briscoe, at least one of them gets hits, hit on by a witness every show. <laughs> like, it's subtle. But it, they always, sometimes, they always get hit on. And this is an episode where they both kind of got hit on. Who hit on Briscoe? Oh, I th- that professor. Uh, oh, yeah.
1: The English oh, professor. She had yeah. some
4: bedroom eyes for Briscoe. She was kind of challenging him, but she was giving him the look.
1: More often than not, the more obvious something appears, the more complex it is in reality.
3: Now I remember why I hated college. <laughs>
2: I think she wanted to do know. some dirty dancing.
5: She wanted to punch down that community college weight is what she wanted to do.
3: <laughs>
4: <laughs> she wasn't as forward as the Ray girl, but she's older. You know, she, that's not her style. She's got to just kind of put the vibe out there for Briscoe.
2: We know that the creepy guy is the suspect. First off, because his name is Merrill Grupp. Yes. <laughs> Sorry to all our fran- our fans named Grupp, but <laughs> it just seems like they wanted to really make him look bad. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And look, not for nothing, but if you're the kind of guy who's going to steal a pair of panties, why is your DNA not all over them?
5: (laughs) Ew. (laughs) Ew, ew, ew. And by the way, what college roommate knows what her college roommate's panties look like enough where the cops would be like, do these belong to your roommate? Yes, they definitely do.
2: I don't know. Did you find them on the floor?
4: (laughs) (laughs) The 90s were a different time.
5: (laughs) Were they? (laughs) No.
0: No, they weren't.
2: All right, now let's look at the second half of this episode. Who swoops in to represent hospitalized Megan but perky Shelly Cates, who knows a little too much about Jack McCoy. Her first move is to get the suicidal confession and the murder weapon excluded from trial. Exigent circumstances, Your Honor. The officers weren't looking for a murder weapon. They were merely seeking to prevent further harm to Ms. Maslow, who is obviously in serious need of medical attention.
3: Call me crazy, but if I were trying to save the girl's life, my first reaction would have been to call a doctor, not look to see what kind of fiddle she was playing. They were searching for drugs, Your Honor. Unfortunately, I happen to be one of the few jurists who will actually believe the bloody gloves should have been excluded. The confession's in. The knife's out.
2: The Amsterdam College dean says Megan was a star student, one whose parents died of natural causes. But using their CompuServe account to search on Alta Vista, they find that Megan also had a sister who she killed. Mm. Olivet says, I have an examiner, but she's probably paranoid. <laughs> So, with their murder case crumbling, Schiff says, forget the homicide. She committed fraud on her college application when she lied about her juvenile conviction. Well, even Kate knows that her client is nuts, so... In a casual and blatant violation of her Sixth Amendment rights, (laughs) her attorney says, I'll help McCoy trick her into a murder confession at this bullshit fraud trial. (laughs) On cross-examination, McCoy plays to Megan's paranoid feelings. She says she killed Allison because she sabotaged her music tryouts, put poison in her toothpaste, glass in her water, and all sorts of shit that lets us know that she is fucking crazy. Having incriminated herself on the stand, McCoy brings back the murder charges and accepts an insanity plea that all parties wanted in the first place. Okay, Shelley Cates is supposed to be this fantastic lawyer, but she just kind of flits in and out on rainbows and fairy dust. Who is buying this character? I am. You are hundred okay. percent.
5: I love Shelly Cates. I wish they had made her a recurring character that came back over and over and over again. Uh-huh. I loved the way that she would throw out references to what she knew about Jack's sex life and uh-huh. rattle Claire. That was uh-huh. fun. Yep. And, you know, I loved that the fact that, you know, Jack and Adam Schiff. Like, we're happy to say, like, this is a formidable lawyer, a formidable lady lawyer.
2: Yeah. Not something you see a whole lot on this show. No, but Lawrence, are you buying that she did not seem formidable? I mean, she seemed nice, (laughs) you know, (laughs) but she doesn't seem, like, scary or anything like that. Uh, Like, you'd be worried that she'd beat you at trial.
4: See, I think that's because we only got this one episode, like, this introductory. Mm -hmm. If she had done more, we would have seen that her next episode, she would have snuck out a win. Uh, yeah. using some crazy you know obscure devious way and then it would have been on we just we're used to these lawyers who we got to see build up where they got a couple you know they they took their lumps but they got a couple and we didn't mm-hmm. get that with her but i agree i think i love her interaction with Jack the way that she talks so familiar to him and Jack knows he just kind of has to put his head down and go with it because he's that's not jack's style is to fight it He's just kind of got to go with the flow and see where it gets him. And I thought she was—I thought she was great. I agree. She's bubbly. I liked her, and I think that we would have had more respect for her if we were given more time with her.
5: I, the other thing too that this episode shows, which I think is way more realistic than the way lawyers are very often portrayed, you know, as adversaries in mm-hmm. the courtroom, is it shows their rapport outside of
3: court away from their clients.
2: This girl was killed twice. You want her to kill again?
3: My job as her attorney is to keep my clients out of jail.
2: And your job as an officer of the court is to protect society, morally.
3: Morally. (laughs) Morally.
5: She obviously needs help. It's way more common to see a relationship like this, where they're fine in private, than it is to see one, like the one that they always show with Elizabeth Marvel, you know, in the yeah. recent episodes where she's like, the enemy. Like, it's just not how it actually is. It's way more like what they're showing in this episode.
2: Yeah, and I can't, and I don't believe that you couldn't pay for a courier. To <laughs> no, that
5: was a move.
2: That was yeah. a move? That oh. was a move. It was, a it was, a, up it
3: move.
5: was Exactly, wow. it was a shot across the bow. It was a Peter Pan shot across the pirate bow (laughs) with some huge 90s earrings in.
4: And she got two, and I don't remember what Jack McCoy said about her, but yeah, she got two, like you mentioned earlier, the rave reviews. Adam Schiff said she could have convinced the jury that Dahmer had an eating disorder. That's right. That's a great line. Huge compliment. (laughs) So I have to ask, were her and Jack a thing, do you think?
2: Oh, that's I interesting. I mean, we are finally seeing the writers like really dropping hints that Jack and Claire yes, are having an it. affair. Now it's, now first we have Shelly coming in when she first meets Claire and asks
3: Jack. Oh goody. Is he still betting what's her name with the red hair? No did um, you say betting? Betting the, that right. Betting, who says <laughs> yeah. that word, by the way? It's a weird word. <laughs>
2: well, now, look, if the answer is no, how does Claire know that?
5: Because, if, yeah.
2: if for no other reason.
5: Because he's doing it with me. Well, <laughs> and I'm a brunette. <laughs>
4: at, the, at the very end, when uh, Schiff gives his line.
1: How much does anyone really know about person sharing his bedroom?
4: And they pan, and, like, Jack, uh, Jack looks right at Claire, like, right in the eyes, just for a second. I never caught it until, like, I was watching for them this episode, because they fascinate me. And he, like, looked right at her uh, after the line. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's a hint. How did I not get that? Yeah.
2: Well, yeah, their, their extra textual relationship is, you know, one of the great gifts, I think, uh, that Law & Order uh, has. And... We got to remember. Let's let's pace this out a little bit throughout this season, and we don't really know. It's it isn't really until the last episode of the season and the aftershock episode where she dies that they're really blatant about it. There's right. a lot. Of, the hints get bigger and bigger and more obvious. But we're only six episodes in, right? Of of this season. Yeah. And so I think that, I mean, do you think that if you were watching for the first time, this would be enough to, for you to go, oh, it me?
5: would now? But back then I was yeah. so oh, no, not stupid. Then. No. Do you yeah. remember, like, we were together when I didn't realize that? Like, you and I were like, we've only been together for a 10 years. I told you years, that. You told me. And I was like, no. I
2: also told you that Mr. Rogers was the voice of all those puppets. That's true.
5: And, <laughs> and I didn't, I never had to Make Believe, it, and I didn't realize that either. Yes. But when I watch it now, I'm like, how could I not have just seen that in every episode? It's so freaking obvious.
2: Lawrence, we're told that Sam Waterston and Jill Hennessy kind of knew that the, the writers were writing this flirtation in, but only Jill Hennessy actually. Believed that they were having sex, really, yeah, and it wasn't into, and and McCoy just uh Watterson just thought his character was being flirty, and it was sort of like a uh you know something else. He had to be told near the end that no, no, actually, what has been happening is your characters have been having an affair <laughs>
4: well, I kind of liked the way they played it though because it wasn't over the top and maybe that's cuz he didn't play it that way she she did give him like the googly eyes like a, you know a lot as you go back and you watch and you can you know looking for it you pick up on that but that makes perfect sense cuz he did always play it cool and i could see if that was his motivation as an actor for doing that then yeah and i like i, I like the fact they didn't really confirm it
2: because i would think that the director would have to have given jill hennessy that direction In that scene with Sandy Duncan, where Sam Waterston is not on set, right? So she would have heard that. Then, in order to get that no, that reaction to the to to Shelley Cates' question. But I can see how it was, I think it was great, whether it was intentional or not, to sort of keep that from the actors, and then the actors keeping that from themselves.
5: But it adds so many layers, because there's also that great scene where um, uh, Peter Pan asks uh, Claire (laughs) to go get them coffee, (laughs) and Claire looks at her like she's insulted, and with the one hand, like she's insulted, she's like, you're asking me because I'm the woman of this, and you're like, go get the coffee. She's also insulted because Jack is like, yeah, get me one too. (laughs) And it's like, wait, we're not just colleagues and equals we're all so fucking and that's insulting. <laughs> and there's a whole like third layer there of like why it's not cool because you also get the sense that Peter Pan knows. Yeah. You but, get but, the sense But McCoy's like, oh, don't yeah.
2: worry, I'll stir your creamer later.
5: That's true. Yeah. But but you know that that she knows though, right? Peter Pan knows. She oh, totally absolutely.
4: knows. I don't even think she knew if Jack was with the redhead. I think she threw that out there just to, get, I agree. to oh, see Claire's yeah. reaction. To
5: rattle her. Totally. Oh, look
2: at the yeah. shoulder pads in your outfit. I'm sure that he's <laughs> getting it with you. But don't,
5: but don't we get hints in other episodes that Jack Jack has always slept with yes. like yeah. young, attractive. Absolutely. So like
2: when he came in originally, that was
5: yes. his, that so. He if was she a dog. knows him. Yeah. That would have been her assumption, and she would have said that for that reason. And it adds it just adds a lot. To yeah. it. Listen, we're, we're talking about this like it's good TV. Right. This is really exciting. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
5: exactly, I'm
4: telling you, this is one of the great love stories of TV that never gets credit because I mean, it did end before it could you know fully develop, which I I still watch Aftershock and get sad like that episode. Yeah. I still get sad at what could have been, and it's just TV, and the people aren't real, but I watch it, and I'm just like,
5: <laughs> but, but they didn't get to, and we know. Oh. Right. He didn't get to finish his sexual harassment of her so she could file a claim against yeah. the attorney general of the city of, the city of New York. That's, <laughs> the, that's the new
3: version. <laughs>
2: yeah, goddamn Me Too's got to ruin everything I'm on Law and order, huh? <laughs> So if Megan is paranoid that her lawyer set her up, uh, well, it's because she did.
3: Yes. Right. I'm remembering something here, Jack. Something you said about a hospital. You
2: told me your client wouldn't go for it.
3: But she doesn't know. Maybe I just look the other way. You're going to sell out your client? You could be disbarred for this, Shelley. Not if it's our little secret. I'm also remembering something a very wise man told me about morality. Well, it's not
4: paranoia if it's true, right? Exactly.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I love how Olivette
5: had this five-minute conversation with her. And the one answer she gets is that I didn't get into Juilliard because my taxi driver was late getting me to audition. And that is the piece of information on which she bases this <laughs> sweeping diagnosis of paranoia or whatever. I'm like, Dr. Wong would not approve of this shit out of it. <laughs> what yeah. is going on?
2: No, Dr. Wong would come, but she has mitoforical wacca. It's something puka. new. Yeah, They're something new. about
5: adding it to the DSM. It's,
2: <laughs> it's in all the journals. <laughs> well, you know, the lawyer is already taking a dive, and McCoy is like, complaining that she's still objecting. Right. When the fix is in, it's like, I thought we had a deal here. I
3: can't look like
5: a pushover, can I? He's like, can't you just cheat the right way? I thought we had a deal. You're holding up our deal, but you're not doing it the right way. If
4: she's as crafty as I'm pretending she is, (laughs) then McCoy has to know that too, right? So maybe he's hesitant if she's going to let this
2: go. Oh no, I might be double-crossed.
5: But there is this fun, uh, there's a couple of fun things that happen because the deal is like a little bit oblique. She's like, did you say something about a hospital? And it's like, it goes by kind of quickly, right? Mm -hmm. And then you realize in the trial scene, like it took me a couple of viewings to realize, wait a minute, this is just like a bullshit fraud trial.
2: It's a fraud trial. With a full jury, it's going to last a week.
5: With the same prosecutor that would prosecute a murder case, right? And then he brings the murder weapon to a fraud trial. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous, right? But then also, like, there's this whole weird thing where um, you see him figuring out as he's doing the questioning exactly what he's going to do after they've made the deal. Mm-hmm. It was, like, a little confusing, right? So,
4: yeah, to me, it did actually feel like he— I. As he's doing that, because that's the typical McCoy where like he kind of rubs the back of his head as he's walking away and he always looks at his <laughs> table like he has his the, that McCoy's thinking mannerism down to a science. And uh, like, I was like, made it, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they didn't do the deal. Like, I thought I missed something at first because it did not seem like the deal was on at that time. And then all of a sudden, swerve, it's a deal again.
5: I have a question. Yeah. Why were the murder parents at the fraud trial?
2: they're interested in all of this yeah so it's like
5: like she has to go like fight a speeding ticket they're gonna show up to that too yeah well Curtis
2: is probably calling saying hey the person who might have killed your dead daughter is (laughs) (laughs) gonna be in court it will probably be acquitted again but here's the thing how would you like to rub that in
5: they're not from there right So you're assuming that if they're at the fraud trial, they're there because they think something might happen, Uh which totally belies this plot line that they just made this deal in the hallway right before the thing happened, right? Yeah, I mean, (laughs) logically, you're 100% correct.
2: But McCoy gets her the way he could get any woman, which is to say- we talk to your friends. <laughs> <laughs> what they say. What they say. <laughs> huh, huh, huh. That little bitch, I did it.
4: <laughs> well, I learned in this episode that one million words. An hour or a day or a year. I don't know. A lot of words. Million words every day. <laughs> every day are now being put onto this internet we speak of. Ooh. Yeah.
2: And a lot of them are hashtag sad.
5: <laughs> I learned that a sex fantasy murder blog is the lit of cyberspace. That's what I learned.
4: <laughs> I learned that if Lenny wants to insult Ray, he'll say... Why don't you get him a box of floppy
5: disks? (laughs) (laughs) I learned that the first 30 pages of Moby Dick is all about whale blubber. (laughs) So many fun facts. Oh, you know what else I learned? What? That multiple stab wounds are always... About sex. No,
2: they're not. What
5: are you talking about, Ray? Like, (laughs) nobody (laughs) thinks that.
2: (laughs) I learned that Van Buren watches PBS. (laughs) Yes. Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait.
4: You look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me but for less money. A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start saving today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer.
0: Sling. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by Chev and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.
2: All right, let's take a look at the real life story that inspired this episode. It's time for Ripped from the Headlines.
3: You think you know who did it? You think you know. Did it but you don’t know who did it. You don’t know who did it Rip from the headlines
1: This episode was inspired by the real-life case of Gina Grant. In 1990, the 11-year-old girl killed her mother by hitting her over the head with a candlestick. She later stuck a knife in the corpse’s neck to make it look like a suicide. Under questioning from the police, Gina eventually confessed to the killing, saying her mother had abused her and her sister. After serving a year in juvenile detention, Gina moved in with an aunt and uncle in Cambridge, Massachusetts. She excelled academically in high school and was accepted to Harvard in 1995. She hasn't told the admissions counsellor about her conviction. Instead, she said her mother had died in an accident. When the Boston Globe included Gina in an article about low-income students accepted to Harvard, old news about her arrest came to light. Harvard rescinded her acceptance, saying she lied on her application. She sued the university claiming they couldn't ask her about criminal information under seal. Major newspapers, student publications, and prominent professors took Gina's side and criticized the school. Despite the controversy, Tufts University granted her admission to the class of
0: 1999.
1: Okay, I want to know, why
2: would you lie about it? That's the greatest college essay ever. It really is
5: exactly what I was thinking. I mean, the whole, like, college stuff, I mean, one of the things that happens in this... Episode, is it? What is that? Like Amsterdam University or whatever. It looks like it's filmed at Fordham, by the way. I only know that because I went to college visit there recently. Uh, It it costs 30 grand a year. And I'm like,
2: (laughs) (laughs) I just spit out my beer all over my script. Oh my god! Uh, yeah, thirty grand. Wow, that's a what lot of money.
5: What a deal! Right?
3: <laughs> I mean, it's still obviously it's
5: still way too much money and whatever. But like, so I mean, I have a kid as college bound. Yeah, that's a I'm deal for boat. a fancy private it university. It would be. Yeah. It
2: would be as where in real life Harvard was not.
5: <laughs> <laughs> but I will say, if my son. Had murdered somebody when he was eleven, and that crime was under seal now, and he didn't not want to write about that in his college essay. I'd be like, "You are writing about that."
2: Come up with a better six hundred words. <laughs> <Simon. laughs> Here is what I did on my summer vacation. <laughs> Hard time. From
4: Parole. The time you were on trial
5: for murder.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
5: Think of a time you faced adversity. How did you confront it? I, I hired a I really good plea. lawyer.
2: <laughs> I denied
5: <laughs> everything.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
5: I made it look like suicide <laughs> <laughs>
2: Womp womp So wait
5: a minute So this real life kid Yeah And of course we're talking about murder And we're laughing And that's inappropriate But She hit her mom Over the head with a candlestick
2: <laughs> Yeah and like, then stabbed like it's her in the
5: neck, na- yes. Yeah, she basically got this whole murder plot from playing. Clu. She did
2: it in the conservatory. <laughs> um, look, it's not ideal that Harvard learns about this in a newspaper. Harvard rescinded admission to kids who like write stuff on Twitter, right? Yeah. Uh, so is it reasonable to say that if you obfuscated your criminal history, you don't get to come to the most prestigious college in America?
4: Yes. You're you are now a reflection of that university. So if you write something on Twitter, you know, nowadays, then yeah, that university doesn't want to be associated with you. And they dismiss you, whether it's they have other reasons, student code, blah, blah, blah. It's all about optics and PR. And as a college, you don't want to be associated with that person or have it come out. This person is attending your school. I disagree. Yeah,
5: I don't I don't disagree with the Twitter thing. I think that that's fair game. I think that kids who post racist stuff on Instagram, that's worse than being a murderer. No, but that is under seal, I right?
2: Mean, I know that being a racist is so pretty bad, but you know
5: i don't I don't know what Harvard's application looks like, but I looked at a lot oh, of college yeah. applications when I was helping my son like submit all his. And there was no question on there about do you have a felony record or did you commit a murder? There's no question about that. So, like, is it are they just pissed because they found out about it? Later, and it was a, bit, In a big public way,
2: probably. Yeah, probably.
5: Yeah, I mean, but it's it's, it's different than, and it's also, and I, I I kind of agree with everyone who sided with her because it was under seal There's a reason why that seal stuff exists. Right,
2: but she did actually straight up lie about right. what happened to her. Mom. Right, but
5: well, okay, maybe that's different. But yeah. there is a whole the reason that the seal stuff exists is so that if you're, I mean. Granted, this is a different kind of situation, but I hate to use the term slippery slope. That's what it is. If you're 15 and you pee on the street and you get arrested for indecent exposure, like that isn't supposed to harm you the rest of your life. And that's why the seal exists. Right. And so As I the As Sandy I, Duncan's I character said,
2: she served her time. She's been rehabilitated. And the judge said it would
5: never come up again. Yeah, right. <laughs> she said she
4: served her 90 days is what
2: she said. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and yeah. she's been rehabilitated. And I was like, What? Rebecca, you will remember that the the Winklevoss twins appealed to Harvard President Larry Larry Summers Summers, that Mark Zuckerberg had, had broken the Harvard Code of Honor by stealing Facebook. Right. He also needed to have, I guess, committed a juvenile murder to get kicked out of Harvard.
5: (laughs) But you know what uh, Mark Zuckerberg's response was to that in the Facebook movie, anyway? I
2: I forget. What was it?
5: Uh, If they had invented Facebook, they would have invented (laughs) Facebook.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And if you had killed your mother with a candlestick, you would have killed your mother with a candlestick.
5: I I really do think it was a missed opportunity not writing about that in the college. That's all (laughs) I keep thinking about. I'm sorry.
4: And just... Uh, just to be factual, th- he didn't steal Facebook, he stole the Facebook. Oh, that's right, yes.
3: <laughs> Sean Parker right. had
4: not yet gotten rid of the
5: uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I love how all of our references really just come from the movie it yeah, well, There, yeah, yeah. like, well, we what actually happened.
4: I live my life by one rule, and that's whatever <laughs> Sorkin writes exactly. I, I
2: consider to be factual. Now, had Gina Grant been in the Harvard class of 1999, mm. she would have been classmates with uh, Samantha Power, UN ambassador, Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas, Jesse Robredo, Secretary of the Interior for the Philippines. And Craig Adams of the Pittsburgh Penguins. <laughs> oh. Okay. Notable 99 classmates at Tufts include Joel Semkai, the founder of Grinder.
5: <laughs> hey, my kid applied to Tufts. I'm not gonna say <laughs> yeah, that. Your kid's no. also on
2: Grindr.
4: Yeah, I, was, I was wondering where that sentence was going.
5: <laughs> <laughs> now I know why he did so. <laughs>
2: Now, she may have paid her debt to society, but you know she's still paying off her student loan. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. That's going to do it for us. We want to thank our guest, Lawrence Tucker. Lawrence, where can our listeners follow you online? Uh, We're transitioning to a new show. Uh, It's going to be
4: called uh, Pop Rocks. That will be soon if you subscribe to the Awesome 80s feed or to the Facebook or Twitter uh, those will all be uh, changed over here within the next uh, three weeks or so. And you'll get the the new episodes. So right now, the best way is uh, Hosted Awesome 80s pod on Twitter, or uh, you can just email me at HostedAwesome80s.com.
5: So your new Pop Rocks podcast, is it going to finally answer the question of whether or not Mikey from the Life commercials died from eating Pop Rocks or not? I
2: am looking for him. He's out there <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> Rebecca, how can our listeners follow you?
5: You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram at Reb Lavoie.
2: and you can track me on Twitter at Kevin P. Flynn. You can also tweet to us at Law and Order Pod, or follow us on Instagram at These Are Their Stories Podcast. Our newsreader was Cy Frater. Our theme music was composed and performed by Uncanny Valleys. Line editing from Henry Lavoy. Content assistance from Travis Roy. Lily Flynn handles promotions. To get ad free episodes of These Are Their Stories a week early, sign up for Stitcher Premium. Get your first month free at Stitcher Premium. Dot com slash crime All clips in this podcast were used in compliance with the US Copyrights Act fair use exemption for criticism and commentary. If you want to know what episodes we're talking about in our upcoming shows, go to Law and Order Sign up for our newsletter for a chance to be our next Law and Order Marathon winner. These are their stories, was recorded in the Yoga Loft above the Bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studios, and is a production of Partners in Crime Media.